going here. And yes, Sarah, we're going to, no, you're right, you're right. It was like, it's like time. So uh, we are, we're kicking off a series today, calling it Summer of Love. And if that's causing trauma to some of you, I apologize. Um, I didn't mean to, to do that, but I figure enough time had passed uh, since the 60s that we could use it and it would be okay. Um, you know, it's a pretty straightforward, uh, self-explanatory sort of uh, series title where we're taking the summer we're talking about love, <laughs> okay? So um, that was really as much as thought that went into it. Um, and we'll be focusing on love. And honestly, like my last couple of messages, that has been a major theme. Um, and I, I, I was hesitant, though, to really just go on for like a full sermon series and call it a sermon series. And as I was, I was thinking about that, I was trying to like figure out, like, why is it that I, I find it hard to wrap my mind around a whole sermon series about love? And I think it's because I have a real deficient understanding of the importance of love. Okay? So that's my, that's my confession. I have a very deficient understanding of the importance of love. Uh, that is to say, when I read the New Testament, right, if I'm paying attention, the theme of love is just absolutely everywhere. And not only is it everywhere, like little, little love is mentioned quite, quite often, uh, but it is centralized. I mean, Paul talks about how love is indispensable in various points. You know, we, we, without love, we're nothing. We could be the most spiritual, you know, Bible knowledge, prophesying types of people. But if we don't have love, it doesn't amount to anything. And, and then when, I, when I, 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 I realize that, I recognize that, you know, in my brain, I recognize when I read the Bible, there's love. Love is all over the place. And then when I think about, like, what I would say uh, if I were asked to, like, talk about what does it mean to be a Christian or what's the most essential thing in the Christian life uh, or asked to explain biblical doctrine, I'm not sure if I would talk nearly enough about love. I'm not sure if I would centralize and center love the way that Paul does, which is my problem, Right? Not Paul's problem. It's my problem, right? Dallas Willard. It's been, it's been a whole two minutes, so you have to have a Dallas Willard quote, right? Uh, he says this, It is remarkable how little doctrine relates to love. I read a lot of doctrinal statements about, uh, uh, by, by this or that organization. They rarely say anything about love. It would seem that love has nothing essentially to do with doctrine or correct teachings, nor doctrine with love. What Willard points out is not an assertion. He's not making a claim. He's pointing out a curiosity in the way that we think about and teach about love. He is wondering, how is it that we've gotten to the point uh, that, that we have where, where, where we've at least, and, and, and this is not true universally, like, but in, in a lot of church doctrine, in a lot of church talk, in a lot of theological talk, we've divorced um, doctrine from love. How did we get there? And I don't really want to sp spend a lot of time thinking through, like, the historical development of that, which though I, th I think that would be interesting. But I will say this, just from my experience. I think Christians who intend to take the Bible seriously, which is me and probably you, <laughs> um, if you people, Christians who intend to take the Bible seriously at times have backed away from a biblical doctrine of love out of concern that we might diminish the call to holiness and righteousness. Like we've played those ideas off of each other as if to say, well, if we preach too much on love, we won't be emphasizing the call to holiness enough. That's just been my observation. 
I'm not saying it's true to your experience. Like, uh, but but I, I think that the beauty of the gospel is that it is the, the perfection of righteousness and love. Like, like, what Jesus does is he invites us to both of these things. It always has been. I think God's plan has always been to bring about righteousness by love. And I think that is the, the, um, the driving force behind the gospel. Always has been. Psalm 85, Old Testament, right? Talking about what God is doing, uh, says this, 85 verse 10, Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness smiles down from heaven. Yes, the Lord pours down his blessings. Our land will yield its bountiful harvest. Righteousness goes as the herald before him, preparing the way for his steps. So though we might have trouble thinking about like, like squaring the love of God with a call to righteousness, I think the Bible is telling us, no, this is God's plan. <laughs> righteousness and peace, kissing. Unfailing love and truth meeting together. Jesus did that. He brought those two things together. And so this morning, uh, we're going to uh, just, just be jumping in, and we're going to ask this first question, um, and we'll, we'll ask kind of like a, a single question uh, each, each throughout the sermon series. And, and the first question is, what is God's love like? And I know I've actually preached on this recently, right? I preached on the love of God pretty recently, like a couple weeks ago, three, four weeks ago. Um, but I just want us to stop here again and just focus on that question. What is God's love like? And, and as we do this sermon series, um, we are going to uh, invite different people to share testimonies, which is an invitation. If you have a testimony about how you've come to ex experience or know or understand the love of God in a new way, would you just like reach out to me because I, and then I'm going to ask you to share it. <laughs> but just, just before you, before you just think through what I'm really asking, right? Um, so, so like, um, so that you can like share because we have to encourage one another. You know, that's part of the, the, the church is that we're gathered together to edify one another. And so um, we're going to have some testimonies. And this morning, I have the extreme pleasure uh, of inviting my wife Molly, and she volunteered for this, guys. I, I, it's, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yes. Um, it's a miracle because, like, if you know my wife, this, this, you must think this is like a Stepford Wives situation or something. You know, there's something going on here. Because to, to have her take a microphone in her hand and, and talk, like, that is just not, I'm not going to use, the, yeah, you are. You've got to use the mic. You can sit down normally. Hi. <laughs> it, it's not too late for me to. It is. Out. It's too late. You're here. You're here now. Yeah. So I'm so glad you're here. Thanks. Thanks for being here, Molly. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So so we kind of structured this. I'm going to ask Molly a couple questions, and then she's going to give us a couple answers. Okay. So Molly, <laughs> tell me, how have you historically understood God's love? Um. Well, I would say actually that, similar to what that Alistair Lake quote was talking about, I think I had a pretty sound doctrinal understanding of love. Um, I started following Jesus about 15 years ago, and I think all the scriptures, John 3.16, Romans 5.8, 1 John 4.10, that God loved us 
by demonstrating his son's sacrifice on the cross for us. That was sufficient. Um, but if I'm really being honest, I would say that I was left with a sense of inner dissatisfaction, even believing those things to be true, um, and not really experiencing God's personal love for me. So I could say those things were true, and I believed I was saved by grace through faith, but I think on the inside, I, um, I was left with some longing in terms of feeling loved and the experience of feeling loved by God. Um, and I think that's interesting because you think of God as being perfect and holy and not making any mistakes, and it's the word says that he demonstrates his love, but then I don't feel loved. I think the natural conclusion is some sense of like personal failure, like I'm doing something wrong because God's perfect and he's done this thing. And then I think that was actually throughout my walk with Jesus, that was only echoed at times by life in the church because people around me would be full of joy and assurance and, and basking in this love that they felt from God. And I think I, um, I didn't feel it the way that I thought I should feel it. And that often um, made me feel like I was doing something wrong. It was my responsibility to feel loved by God or experience God's love, which really when you think about it like that, it turns that into like a work. Like that's something, not earning my salvation, but I'm earning the feeling of being loved by doing it right or getting it right. Yeah. Must have been hard to be married to a pastor, too. <laughs> We're going to get to that part. <laughs> <laughs> I, she hasn't told me what she's going to say today, I so uh, you guys yeah. are all, we're all hearing this at the same time. Um, all right, so historically, understanding intellectually God's love, but not experiencing it and feeling as if it's your fault somehow. Yeah. Okay. So what changed? Well, I think a lot of things changed. One thing was that I started um, doing spiritual direction, which if you're not familiar with that, that's like a, I think an ancient Catholic practice, actually, where you sit with a trained Christian kind of spiritual guide, and they help you along your spiritual journey. Um, and I also started therapy. I think the thing that both of those, w with a Christian therapist, I should add, um, and the thing that both of those uh, services offered me was a space to confess some of that disappointment I think I was feeling. And you didn't feel like you could do that in the church? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe I could a little bit in part, but I think those particular things gave me space to like actually confront some of the, mm. the darkness that I was feeling about it and the shame. And at this point, I mean, we're talking like this is within the last couple of years, so like 14 years of walking with Jesus this way, so it was pretty buried in there. Um, so I think that was really important, because I think when you bring stuff out into the light, share it with another person, um, at least the shame part of it melted away. Um, that didn't, it didn't really fix the inner disappointment, I would say, but definitely a lot of the shame was removed. Hmm. Um, another thing started to happen, and I want to have a brief, so the last church that Trey and I was in, were in was a very scripture-centric church. It was very, everything was based on scripture, and that was awesome. It was a wonderful, wonderful church. Um, but I think I developed, in some sense, maybe a little bit of a healthy fear, but in some sense, not a, so much. Um, a, a fear of, like, 
going outside the bounds of scripture. So anything that I would expect from God, like it needed to be backed up by a scripture that could explain it. So something started happening to me that I could not explain with scripture. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was confusing, a little disorienting, but I think in the long run, good. Something that started happening after the therapy began and, and the spiritual direction stuff. I started to have words and images and thoughts like jump into my head. Um, I am a classic overthinker and I am very familiar with my thought patterns. They have ruled my life as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, and so these things would come into my head and they would totally disrupt what I, like my normal course of thinking or the normal conclusions I would come to. And um, it, was, it was inconvenient and like kind of jarring, but it was not unpleasant. And it wasn't, it wasn't an experience of feeling loved necessarily right at first, but it was definitely like I, I recognized it as a God thing. And that slowly developed um, pretty shortly thereafter into like some visions, which again, like this is out of the bounds of anything I would have ever expected from God ever. Well, unless you read, you know, well, okay, Acts fine. 2. Wait, <laughs> not, I'm saying there's, there's precedent. That's like not the God I would expect in my life. Let's okay. just say like that. Because you're very heady and... Yeah, yeah. Not, I didn't like... Yeah, okay. anyway. Um, I had some friends at the time who were going through some really difficult challenges and trials and had asked me to pray. And I'm kind of on this dark spiritual journey, not really sure what was happening with me and God, but I committed to praying, praying for them through their trial and like... God, like, just started giving me these visions, and they were for the people, but they were almost more so for me. Like, they were encouraging to them, but they were, like, blessing to me because I started to feel like God was interacting with me. Like, I was praying and, like, overcome in intercession, um, and then he started answering those prayers. Like, things were happening after I was having those experiences, and so I think all of that kind of came together and at least solidified to me like okay god is real he's interacting with me and in the world he cares but i was still left not really convinced that i was loved until <laughs> he finally about a year ago a little over a year ago um i i had another one of these visions and it was for me and basically god took me back in my memory to the time just before i got saved I was in my early 20s, and in my head, like a movie is the best I can describe it, um, he played out my life as like an alternate reality, like as if I hadn't known him. And it was probably the scariest experience I've ever had, um, which is weird because it wasn't even a physical experience, it was just in my head. Um, but I had to confront a lot of things after that about who I was, and, and things I hadn't thought about in a really long time. And I walked away from that experience with a new understanding of grace, um, just seeing that God had taken my life and inexplicably and with no effort of my own, he had just traded it. He had traded it for the life he wanted for me. Um, and at that moment was really when I felt loved um, for the first time. Um, that he would do that for me. Awesome. The last question, I feel like you already sort of touched on this, but what difference did that make? <laughs> I mean, 
What difference did that make? <laughs> well, well, you know, when I was thinking through all of this, you know, these events that have happened, um, actually, God really blessed me because, like I told you before, I'm, I'm, I'm a little wary of things that happen, like, outside of the bounds of Scripture. But he gave me a Scripture that was very helpful to illustrate, um, which was when Jesus heals the blind man in Mark chapter 8. He, he touches him, and then the blind man says, um, I can see men like trees walking. And then Jesus touches him again, and the scales fall off, and he can actually see the reality for what it is. And when I look back on my walk with Jesus, I think undoubtedly I was touched the first time. Um, but then for about 14 years, I think I walked around with scales on my eyes. <laughs> um, and really, like I had, I was laughing because people don't really look like trees. Like your vision has to be pretty bad if you think <laughs> that the people walking around you look like trees. And I, I think when I look back on my understanding of God's love, like that is how misunderstood I was. Like I literally could equate it to men like trees walking. Like it was, I knew it, um, but very, really unfamiliar very with it. Yeah, yeah, in a very blurry, blurry way. And I think this kind of second touch um, has brought me into a place where I, I maybe used to see God's love as like something you need to receive or something you need to accept, which again, like the responsibility is on you to receive it or to accept it to now this idea that we're just immersed in it. Um, Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, like the length and width and height and depth of God's love that surpasses knowledge. Um, and I, I feel like for the first time, like I'm swimming in that. Um, and then just secondary to that, I think something that's different is that I've come to realize like in that space, like it's occupied by the Holy Spirit, like the whole thing. God is love, God is the Spirit, like it's all one, like the Spirit is omnipresent, God's love is omnipresent, like it is, mm -hmm. it is, we're swimming in it. And I think we always have been, but it takes these scales coming off to see it. Um, and so I finally feel like for the first time, like, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Like it is in me and above me and around me and I'm breathing it and living in it and swimming in it and playing in it. Amen. So that's that. Thank you, Jesus. All right. All right. There you go. Um, what, a, what a lovely lady. Um, hey, just like a, a couple quick comments on what Molly said. Number one, I think it's worth pointing out that that's 15 years. Um, and maybe you're discouraged, like, where you're at with the Lord. Uh, that's okay. Mo Molly has, has been in the fight. I will tell you, it has not been easy for her. I am aware, because we're married. <sighs> um, <clears throat> but God has been faithful. And sometimes things take time. And I don't know why that is, but they are. My favorite uh, theology professor from seminary, you know, talking about the different uh, understandings of, you know, how God operates in the world, you know, between is it Arminian or is it more, more Calvinist? Does God meticulously plan everything or is there free will? His, his response to this, and I, I love it, and some of you guys will hate it. Uh, his response is God just does different things with, in different people in different ways. And it's his sovereign prerogative 
for me, honestly, like, accepting the love of God has been much easier. And I, I can't say why that is. For, for Molly, it's been really difficult. And, and, and the, the point of all that is to, is to just point out... Um, <clears throat> point of all that is, is, is to point out that wherever you're at, you know, we, we just, we are all standing on, on God's faithfulness. A Dallas Willard quote, you know, says, love is not a faucet to be turned on or off at will. God himself doesn't just love uh, me or you. He is love. He is creative will for all that is good. That's his definition of, 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 of love or the will for, for, for the good of the, of the other. That is his identity and explains why he loves individuals, even when he's not pleased with them. Even when he's not pleased with them. You know, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say, oh man, the love of God just, just takes away, like, <sighs> the love of God makes, means you don't have to worry about sin. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying that the love of God, um, knowing the love of God, um, just, just, I'm just saying that the love of God is so fundamental to who he is. We have to understand his character. We have to like, take, do this work like, of, like Ephesians 3, like Molly was talking about. Paul says that you would uh, know the expansive, and he describes the love of God that is beyond comprehension, that you would know something that is beyond comprehension is the, is the invitation for the Christian when it comes to the love of God, that you would start to get a glimpse of something that you will never be able to wrap your head around and, 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 and know the consistent love of God that is his very nature. That's our, that's our calling. And it is the, I think it is the thing, the central thing worth fighting for because it's, it's from the steadiness and knowing the love of God, even when he's not pleased with you because maybe you're resisting him or, or whatever, to, to know that will become the foundation for your life, your Christian life. And maybe, and it's like, it's like hard, right? Because it's not one of those things, well, okay, so I need to know the love of God, and so I'll just flip the switch in my brain that's the love of God knowledge switch, right? It's not like that. But here's the thing, is that I do think that we are engaging with a God who wants to reveal himself and let us know how much he loves us. And he cares for us and he's provided for us. And in Jesus Christ, he has taken away all the sin and all the shame and all the many things which we let separate us uh, from him. He's, he's provided everything so that we might have life in him and peace in him. I want to look at John 5 for a second. Um, get a Skip the next slide there, Caleb, and get on to John 5. Um, so this is Jesus. He's going around doing the stuff that he does, which is, which is healing and, and, and just like showing the whole world what God is like because he's God himself in, in the flesh. And um, here we go. All right, so let's just, let's just jump in. I'm not going to further introduce it. He says, by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Uh, within these lay a large number of, of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, but I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got up well, picked up his mat and started to walk. A little context for this passage, like this is Jesus, he's, he's walking around Jerusalem and he comes upon the pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida, uh, there kind of seems to be a disagreement about, uh, among commentators about what it means, but the, the most common meaning of that word, uh, sorry, Bethesda, not Bethsaida. Bethesda is house of mercy. So he comes on the pool of the house of mercy. And around this pool, there are all these people They're lame, they're blind, they're paralyzed, disabled people. And what's going on here is that there was this belief in this culture that when the waters were stirred, that was like an angel disturbing the waters. And what the the lame and blind and disabled and paralyzed tried to do is to get into the water first. And the first one that would get there would get healed. At least that's what they believed. That's what the legend was. And so there's all these hurting people sitting around the side of this lake. And this guy's been here for who knows how long. We know a long time. That's what the text tells us. He's, thir- he's been disabled for 38 years. Has he been there the whole 38 years? We don't know, but he's been there a long time just trying to get into the water, trying to overcome these obstacles. And he tells Jesus, who comes up to him and says, well, do you want to get well? He says, well, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. And then Jesus just looks at this man, right? This hurting person who's been just in this situation for a very long time. And he just tells him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And this man gets up and he picks up his mat and he starts to walk. But that's not the end of the story, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty great start, <laughs> if you ask me. It's not the end of the story. Like, it goes on. He says, now, the, this was the Sabbath, right? This was the Sabbath. This was the day of rest for religious Jews. And so the Jews, the Pharisees, uh, said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And just skipping ahead a couple of verses, right? So basically, they, they like, harass this man. The man doesn't realize who, he wasn't, like, looking at Jesus. So he doesn't know who told him to get up and, and walk, Right? Um, but they finally he figures out that it was Jesus who told him to get up and walk, and, and then the Pharisees go to Jesus and says, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, my father is still working, and I am also. See, the, the problem that these religious Jews had is that they said, well, we have a great understanding of who God is, and we know that God doesn't allow you to do work on the Sabbath. And so you told this man to pick up his mat, which is work. And, and so, so they, they go, and they you yell at this guy, and they, they, they you know tell him, bad boy, for picking up your mat. I don't care if you were there for 38 years or whatever. 
you, you did the wrong thing, right? And they find out who, who, who did this, who, who told him to pick up the mat, and they go find out it's Jesus, and, and they tell Jesus, you know, you shouldn't have done that because there's rules about God. God has put these rules in place, and we have to do things this way. And Jesus responds to them. He says, well, my father is still working, and I am working also. See, over and against the assumptions of, of the religious people of his day, Jesus just makes it clear. He's saying the world, like, like we, we've kind of tried to understand the world, right? And we, all of us are trying to think about what is it like to be in the world and how do we get ahead and what does it look like to, to love God and what does it look like to, to live a good quality of life? And, and the religious Jews of, of his day like, had, had kind of come to this understanding based kind of off of the, of the scriptures that they had. But the way that they could do well in life is, is, is that if they obeyed God's law very carefully, then God would owe them his favor. And then these religious people look at this guy and they think, well, look, he's, he's messing stuff up. He's, he's not obeying the laws the right way. Like, like, if he really wanted to be made well, he would very carefully do what we do, which is obey all the rules in the exact perfect way. And then God would owe him something. But clearly, for this guy, at least they would have rationalized, right? Which oftentimes in, the, in this culture, like, like the sick, the lying, the, uh, the poor, the lepers, they were just like cast off in that culture because it was thought, well, they're just sinners, right? They're just so far from the love of God, right? And God must be punishing them for some reason, right? Right? And, and so they would have just kind of rationalized this guy's affliction and his difficulty and the years and years in which he spent by the pool and having no one help him or care about him or do anything for him. And they would have just said, well, it must just be that God's mad at him because he did something wrong at some point, right? And there's really just no, just no hope for this guy. And they would have just said, uh, sucks to be him. And then Jesus comes into this culture, right? It's it, it shaped by an understanding of what God's like and that God is, is, is pretty angry, right? And that you got to obey the rules if you want to be in his favor in a very particular way so that you can, you can earn God's love. And what Jesus does is he goes everywhere and he just says, no, that is not actually really what we're up to. And he just breaks the, the rules, the rules. He breaks the understanding of people who just have this system in place in their minds that all, everything, our interactions with God is just about earning favor. And, and when, when these Pharisees come and they tell him, hey, you know what, like on the Sabbath, you have to take rest really seriously. You have to take the work of rest really seriously because God has said that you have to. And if you don't, you're going to make God mad. And, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to avoid making God mad. And Jesus's response is my father, like on this day of rest where you're trying to earn God's favor, my father is still working. And so I am also going to be working. Jesus makes it so clear. I mean, God has not wound up the world and just let it play out. He's not distanced himself from it and, and, and made it operate according to these kind of arbitrary seeming rules. He's saying, no, God is actively working in the world. The Father is in the world and I am in the world. And my rest, God's rest, is to work so that these poor, broken, distant people can actually find rest. God 
is not just sitting far away in heaven. He sent his son down into the world, and he is working. He's working in your life. He's working in the life of people whom you know, who like can't even see God, can't even conceive of the possibility that he might be in the world. He is working. He's working among those who do not expect it, among those who have, have hung up the you're not welcome sign outside of their lives. God is working. He is persistent. And he's operating from a great love. Maybe you're a little skeptical of the emphasis on love in the modern church, right? You think, oh, this is like therapeutic deism, which is the way we criticize this kind of touchy-feely religious thing. But here, here's John Chrysostom. He's a fifth-century church father. He's commenting on this same passage, right? Just to prove to you that the love of God has always been central to Christian doctrine. Commenting on the same passage. He says, do not lose heart. Have you no man? You have God. Have you no one to put you into the pool? But you have the one who will not allow you to require the pool in vain. I love that sentence. <laughs> have you no one to hold you in it? You have one who commands you to take up your bed. You have not to say, when I come, another gets down before me. For if you wish to go down to the fountain, no man hinders you. Charity, which is kind of like the Latin derivation from the word of love, is not spent nor consumed. It is a source which is always flowing upwards. Out of his fullness, we are all cured as to our soul and as to our body. Now, therefore, also, let us approach him. All that is to say, just this simple thing, the whole Christian life is founded on the love of God. His character projects itself out into the world. Right? He is working through Jesus Christ, working ongoingly to draw people to himself. His love is not spent up. It is not consumed. It is a source which is always flowing upwards like a spring, springing up out of the water. And out of his fullness, we are cured in our soul, in our bodies. Everything is flowing from, in the Christian life, the love and grace that God is demonstrating to us in Jesus Christ. And this all to say this one thing, God intends good for you because he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to save you. John 10, 9, I love how this folds, five chapters from, from the passage we read earlier in John, I love how it folds together, right? Right, Because Jesus has gone to the sheep gate, and he's called this man, and he's healed them. And here, John 10, 9, Jesus is, is, he just like does these great, great things, like tying together metaphors. He says, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Like, like Jesus came into the world with a, a singular purpose. To demonstrate the love of God 
through his just existence in the way that he cared about people through dying on a cross to show the world that in fact God is not distant, but he intends our good and he is doing all that he can to invite us in. He says he's the gate. He's the way into this healing water, this place where there can be refreshing. He says you have to enter by me and you'll be saved. You want to get to this place where, the, where, 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 uh, where there's rest and there's hope and there's joy? Because that is what the promise of the Christian life is. Then you enter in by Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll have the assurance that he's going to do those things, right? But then uh, we, we were really good at focusing on that in, in, in the American church, right? We, we talk about salvation. We need to trust Jesus. Like we, we entrust our lives to Jesus and we're going to be saved. That means that we're gonna, we know where we're going to end up in the end. We might not know the twists and turns that come along, but in the end, we know God is for us. He's going to be with us. He, he's, going to, he's going to get us to heaven in the end, which, which is great. And that is absolutely true in Scripture, that we can be saved, trust God, and, 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 and entrust ourselves to him. But Jesus says, that's not it, right? There's an and here. He, we enter by him, and we're going to be saved, and we'll come in, and we'll go out and find pasture. And I think that we don't um, understand what Jesus is saying here enough. He's saying, like, you know, you're going to get uh, this life of salvation, which is you're going to be washed, you're going to your sin taken away as you repent of your sin, as you, as you trust in me, you put your hope in me. That's to be saved, right? But then I'm going to, like a shepherd, going to have you come in, going to have you go out, going to have you find pasture. Like the saved life, is the life where Jesus is the good shepherd. And from his love and care for us, he's feeding us, he's caring for us, he's bringing us in and out and anywhere we need to go. And I think a lot of us are thinking, okay, well, I have enough of God's love that he saved me. Okay, great. So we have this like intellectual understanding that we're saved, but we don't experience this care of God that we might come in and go out and find pasture. We don't experience him as the good shepherd that he promised he is. And so all of that is to say, don't be satisfied with just this. Seek God for more. Just, just like, like, be bold enough and hungry enough to, to, to when he speaks and says, do you, do you want to be healed? Like, like to be the sort of person who just says, okay, I'm, I'm going to step out. I'm going to walk. I'm going to go where God calls me to. The Christian life is a life of faith, right? It's, it's, it's trusting and understanding that where God invites, we can safely go, and we ought to. And you know what, guys? Um, if, if I-90, if we are going to be like a, a church um, that makes a big impact, it's not going to be through marketing. It's not going to be through, you know, taking confident political positions. <laughs> it's not the, the many options available in the American church, I hope it is because we are people who understand we're called and secure in and walking in the love of God. Yeah. Righteousness, holiness, yes and amen. That is a part of our inheritance as people loved by God. We can be bold enough to seek fullness and joy and confidence in the Lord. 
and I honestly, you know, it's, it's funny, like, um, talked a little, like, like, Molly, like, did, like, spiritual direction and stuff, which spiritual direction is actually just somebody asking you a bunch of questions. <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a friend who, like, asked ask a, a question, like, about spiritual direction, like, like, what's up with that? Like, shouldn't that happen in the church? And, like, yeah, it should. But the thing is, like, I grew up in the church and it never did. Like, I was never, I was never, like, discipled into a real joy and confidence and security of love. I was discipled into doctrine. I was discipled into faith. But I was never discipled into this, like, life abundance that Jesus promises. And so all of that's to say is that it's there. God has promised it. Let's just, let's go get that. <laughs> like, like, let's trust God with everything. Confident of his work. Confident that we can, that he really is not going to just turn off the faucet. But actually he's going to turn it on all the more. That his grace and his kindness, which he demonstrated in Jesus Christ, is just the beginning. And we're going to have a life with him that is just going to be so marked by his grace and his love. One final Dallas Willard quote to get us, get us going, because that just gets me psyched up. Uh, and the worship team can come up. He says this, we must understand that God does not love us without liking us through gritted teeth, as Christian love is sometimes thought to do. Which I like that. Rather, out of eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewing being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstintingly affectionate regard of God towards all his creatures is the natural outflow of what he is to the core which we vainly try to capture with our tired but indispensable old word, love. <laughs> so that's uh, my hope, friends, is that we could try to capture yet again that word love, try to understand the depth and the, the power of his love, and just stand unashamedly upon the love of God. The love of God leads us to repentance. His kindness, his grace will lead us to, 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 to agree with him for our own good. That stuff will be taken care of. And we'll talk about that. Next week, we're going to ask the question, how are we to love God? You know, what is our response to God's love made sure? But we need to build upon this foundation. We love God because he first loved us, 1 John 4. We love God because he first loved we cannot get away from that. His steady love is the foundation of the whole Christian life, and we can walk in. So I'm just going to pray for you guys, and then we're just going to worship God together. we gotta, we got an upbeat song, so we're going to praise the Lord. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this day, this day that we celebrate um, you know, this, in this weekend, Lord. But we just, we just thank you for who you are. Lord, for, for the, the promises that you've assured us in Jesus Christ, for, for the invitation that we have to a life, a life abundant. God, would you make us so hungry for that? Lord, to know your love and your grace, Lord, would you, would you do what you say you do, like, like in the book of Acts and in Joel and in Jeremiah 31, Lord, pour out knowledge of yourself upon all flesh, God. 
but that's what you're doing in Jesus Christ. This new covenant is just your, your, your unending love and faithfulness. Lord, let us walk into your promises and not be ashamed of them. Not consider ourselves like, like nags, nagging children, Lord, but children who are confident that my Father loves me. Lord, if there's healing needs to be done, Lord, in our hearts, would you heal? Lord, if there's insecurity within us, Lord, a lack of confidence, would you pour out more grace? Would you give us more assurance, Lord? Would you do what you say, Lord? You're going to pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. Give us, give us dreams. Give us visions. Give us scriptures. Surround us with brothers and sisters who, who will have those dreams and visions and, and prayers from God on our behalf and will just speak those things to us, Lord. Lord, we need your word. We need your encouragement, Lord. Where else can we go except to you, Lord? God, fill us with hope. Fill us with joy. Fill us with a confidence that you are loved. Lord, we, we are loved by you, Lord, and that you are love. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, um, let's stand up and worship. And if you have a testimony, how, like how do, you, how do you grow into the love of God? How do, how do you grow in confidence of, of God's love for you? I want to hear about it because what I'm worried is that there won't be any because you guys are going to be shy. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. I, if anyone is shy, it's my wife. And she stepped out. So I would just encourage you guys, if, that, if the Lord puts that on your heart, just please reach out to me. Okay. God bless.